Hello, welcome, welcome to the White Skinned Podcast. Um, I am here today with Dr. Lisa Corrigan from the University of Arkansas. And uh, I just want to introduce you a little bit for everybody. Um, Dr. Corrigan is a professor of communication and a director of the Gender Studies Program at the University of Arkansas. Uh, she's a prominent scholar of the rhetoric of civil rights and social movements and is the author of several celebrated publications on racial justice, uh, communication, and political advocacy. So uh, your first book, Prison Power, How Prison Influenced the Movement for Black Liberation um, in 2016, was a recipient of the 2017 Diamond Anniversary Book Award and the 2017 African American Communication and Cultural Division Outstanding Book Award. So that's great. Congratulations on that. Um, your second book, Black Feelings, Race and Affect in the Long 60s, was just released in 2020. Um, so real excited to talk to you about that. I can't wait to get into it. Uh, in addition, Dr. Corgan has edited the forthcoming collection, Me Too, a rhetorical zeitgeist, and is working on a book about political and racial intimacies. And finally, you co-host a popular podcast, too, with Laura Wiederhoff. Am I saying that right? Wiederhoff? Yeah. Okay. Called Lean Back, as opposed to Lean In. So I was learning a little bit about that too. So cool, we'll talk about that. Lean back, critical feminist conversations. Um, you got your Bachelor of Arts in Communication and English Literature from the University of Pittsburgh, your Master's of Arts in Rhetoric and Political Communication from the University of Maryland, and your PhD in Rhetoric and Political Communication, as well as a certificate in Women's Studies from the University of Maryland. So all that being said, holy cow, what a, what a resume. It's amazing to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for stopping in. Uh, we really appreciate you coming coming by. Thanks so much for the invitation, Steve. It's great to be here. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. There's so many ways. I mean, just knowing about you peripherally, we're both here in Arkansas, kind of just uh, your name keeps coming up. This is kind of a world that I'm excited about and, and your thoughts and your work and your writings uh, keep popping up as well. I got my degree in sociology from the University of Arkansas as well. So, um, so lots of fun to have you on. Um, just super excited to pick your brain, all your brilliance. So I guess we'll just start off kind of just talking about um, maybe maybe how you got into this work and, and how you kind of uh, zeroed in on whiteness. Um, obviously, as you know, white folks sometimes have a little uh, avoidance of the conversations at times. So for you to kind of dive in this deep, um, I just want to know a little bit about your past, maybe a little bit about why you found the interest here. I mean, so I mean, obviously I've got personal stories, but a prof the professional story is that, you know, I was a high school and college policy debater. And so policy was my jam for a long time. And I was in sort of the golden age of policy debate when critiques about race became popularized. And when I went to grad school, I wanted to do policy work mostly on the Cold War but I was also a kid of the hip hop generation. So my political consciousness was formed basically, I joke, I joke that Easy e was my midwife because okay. you know I started listening That's to gangster rap at like 10 and my thoughts about politics and policy were really more influenced by that than even debate. So when I got to grad school, I was like, I wanna do this policy stuff. I have this background in the cold war, but I want to do race work. And so I started writing about Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam and the rest is history. Wow, fascinating. And Farrakhan, I mean, reading, I mean, listening to Farrakhan, obviously there's always some gems. I mean, I know it's super controversial, but uh, you know, it's hard to argue with with a lot of the a lot of the, you know, if you really dive in, 
as public enemy said, don't tell me that you understand until you hit a man, right? So it's funny because when I came to him through PE, you know, okay, okay. okay. And so, um, you know, I wanted to think about hip hop's relationship with the nation of Islam after the civil rights movement was intentionally destroyed by the US government. And so hip hop sort of filled the space, you know, where activism had been because all the leaders had been assassinated. Ooh. So that's well, that's why I started with Farrakhan. And then of course I wrote about Malcolm and a bunch of other things, but mm -hmm. um, I, so I wrote a paper on Farrakhan and I wrote a paper about Lil' Kim. Oh man, that's a, I guess it's, there's connections. There's a lot of connections there, but it's also a little, it seems a little disparate. Uh -oh. I mean, what is the space of black women when the movement's been destroyed and mm. you know the 80s become hyper hyper masculine you know what happens when the all girl rap groups give way to crews that only have one woman and then yeah. women race completely for 10 wow. years so you know for me it felt it felt you know it was it was very contemporary being a white woman and me being a white man and kind of in this white sphere and being so influenced by, uh, obviously by whiteness, how is that, you know, you learn so much about how subconsciously we're all affected by these things and how these structures set up race and how we're, you know, there's so many things that people do, white people, black people, things that are outside of our influence that we just kind of take in um, and get in, hell, man, there's so many things I want to talk to you about, but emotion work too. But how has your journey been? You talk about kind of being in Baltimore and studying these things. Obviously, there's a lot of things that might be considered uh, inflammatory towards white people, and you being white, does that? How did you? How did you take that in? Did you dissociate from uh, the broader white and kind of consider yourself an individual at that point? Or, and then, and then a two-fold question: How does that? How has your journey been in being white? Like, how do you? What are the challenges of? knowing what you know, how have you kind of expunged your, or tried to expunge some of those negative things from your life? You know, so I'm not just an academic, right? So I do politics in the world with, and I have since I was very, very young. So, you know, I started working in politics at 15 on my first campaign and have done grassroots organizing and, and politics, you know, for my whole life in DC and Baltimore and here in Arkansas for the last 15 years. So, you know, I always just, um, there's enough work to go around. Like there's no shortage of racist stuff that is producing segregation and violence. So, you know, my philosophy is like all hands on deck, but I will say that the pushback that I've gotten is almost exclusively from white people. So white people are like, don't talk about that. I don't want to hear about that. I don't want to hear you talking about that. And uh, it has, it really has not been uh, black people or people of color who are like, please don't talk about all this amazing stuff in our history, they mm -hmm. have also been like, please go tell white people, <laughs> you know? So I, I, once I found Stokely and he's like, white people civilize yourselves, you know? Right, I, yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't feel very missionary about it, except like white people need to have better cultural competency. And the only way to do that is to study things that they are intentionally withheld, right? Mm -hmm. In public education. So that's the first part of your question. The second part is, how's my journey been? I mean, you know, I, higher ed is primarily white, you know, mm -hmm. except the HBCUs and the tribal colleges. So um, I was in a mostly, almost exclusively white program. There were no classes in race and communication at that institution at that point. Mm -hmm. Only classes in race that I took were in women's studies and history and, and lit, quite frankly. And mm -hmm. so when I was working on my PhD, which was about the prison memoirs of the Black Liberation Movement, you know, everybody's like, you can't write about this. And I was like, 
why not? <laughs> and, um, mostly because I wanted them to just say white people shouldn't study the history of black America. It's like, say the damn thing out loud, if that's what you right. really feel. But on the other hand, you know, my advisor studied, you know, the presidency. And I said, I don't remember you being first lady. Mm. So like right. standpoint is a limitation. Sure. It, it can enhance, right. What we know, but it's not all that we know. So, um, for me, that was challenging. So, you know, it was easy to get a job, but then very hard to publish because higher ed, there are parts of higher ed that are really hostile to, you know, black speech, but especially black liberation. So it was really hard. And I mean, I got some just super racist rejections and mm. I'm not here for sympathy about that, but as a matter of course, you know, that was a huge part of my early career was just white men shitting on Malcolm or shitting on the Panthers and mm. feeling like it was completely fine to write 900 essays about Reagan, who I also hate and we should definitely write about, but you know, mm. <laughs> he's only possible because of the repression of black people. So it's not like they are somehow not interconnected. Yeah, sure. That's true. No, gosh, man, that's a lot there. So that's, so you've, so the major pushback has been from white folks about talking about black things. What about talking about whiteness, talking about white people? I mean, that's got that's a whole different level of pushback, right? In terms of white people want to discuss it, or do you think it's a... I don't know that it's pushback, it's avoidance. Hmm. It's not pushback. They want to avoid, and then there's a bunch of gaslighting about that. So, right. but I, right. I'm not an avoidant, and I don't feel anxious about talking about race. I do it all day, every single day. And sure. I, also, I also feel like, you know, race scholars are generally not dilettantes. They're not skipping around to all different kinds of stuff. Like if you're doing this kind of work, you're committed to it for life mm -hmm. in my mind. So, I mean, I guess I just find that kind of pushback to be really vapid and politically mm -hmm. immature, which is not totally surprising, right? So if we think about the United States as a democracy, it's only credibly approaching democratic practice after the Voting Rights Act is passed. So that's 60 years. So these people do not know what they're doing. Right, <laughs> so right. I try to be very generous, you know, with white people, even when I'm sort of running them down for their participation in social violence to say like, you don't know what you're doing. Please let me help you understand. Yeah. You know, it's like, I'm doing you, you know, I'm helping out. We're collaborating <laughs> on this whiteness thing. Uh -huh. So I don't, you know, they, I'm sure they have various feelings about that, but. Uh, you know, I, uh, I think that there's more interest in it now than there's ever been. And people are yeah. more open. I mean, you know, I get especially last summer and the summer before I got asked a lot of questions about riots. I write about riots as a language and people wanted to know a lot about George Floyd and if it was the same or different as 68. And I said, listen, you know, in 1968, there were not white people with signs about black activism at their homes they did not put signs in their house that said i support the civil rights movement that was not a thing mm -hmm. so there is this is a different kind of moment where white people are curious they feel like there's political cover to investigate the history of whiteness and white supremacy they want more cultural competency but they come from communities that have shunned that with their churches their families their workplaces and so there's opportunity now, to, I think, to talk about it in a way that did not exist when I was going to college or when I started my career. So, mm -hmm. you know, that has been good, I think. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, definitely the alleviation of, of the alleviation of the feelings aspect of it gives you a little in there with some intellectual kind of some thought work, some brain work. 
Um, I mean, you talk a lot about in, in your book, and I just want to kind of mention this because this is so cool. You've got this, um, the book that you just did, uh, Black Feelings, Race and Affect in the Long 60s. You talk about race, uh, you talk about race, you talk about emotion and emotion work and how that kind of um, work helped to push organization and push movements and things like that. And and I'm, I'm, I want to hear a little bit more about your book. So I want you to tell me about that and some of the key kind of exciting things that you were discovering as you were writing it. Uh, so we'll just start there and then I'll kind of move into some other stuff. So the book is about the, a history of racial feelings in the 60s. And so there is a whole field, a subfield called affect studies that looks at feelings and how they are articulated in public life, mostly through literature. But I am interested in how feelings shape policy, how they shape politics, how they shape our lived reality. And so the book looks at white misconceptions about black feelings and talks about how white people intentionally misread black thought as black feeling. Mm. So when black people make claims about self-determination, white people say they're angry which is also possibly true, right? But then they also read that anger as hatred of white people, right? As a way of managing their own anxiety about their complicity in social violence. So the book looks um, at the long 60s between 1960 and 1975 and looks at the language of feelings from Kennedy basically to Reagan to think through how feelings animate you know, race, racial politics. So, you know, how I think about it is when I talk to white people, especially, I just see them as really dysregulated. And people of color are potentially dysregulated too because of the violence that they're living under and the lack of, you know, agency that a white supremacist culture, you know, forecloses for them. But white people are dysregulated and cannot manage their feelings, right? About themselves or others, or certainly their racial feelings. And so I think that that is helpful because it does not condemn all white people to repeat shitty racist behavior. Instead, they can see those feelings as a pro as historical product, right? As an intentional byproduct of racist structures within which they find themselves, their families, their churches, their schools, their workplaces. So I'm interested in how do you disrupt racial feelings, right? Especially when they are harmful. And so the book is about that. And I would say most of my political work is about how do you disrupt, you know, racist feelings that are motivating, you know, nativism or Nazism or, you know, white supremacy in a multitude of forms. So, I mean, racial feelings are obviously very intentionally put into the system in order to kind of perpetuate things. And they were put in early on. And I, I, I'm wondering, at the point that they were put in, there was so little kind of authoritarian information coming into the country. We didn't have the internet, we didn't have all these things. So they were putting the sciences and they were putting all these books in Harvard and Yale. And we were taught these things on such a big level. Emotions were, were put out in the in America at such this big mass level. Does that, I mean, now we've got so many different forces of so many different forms of information and there's and things have been delegitimatized a lot. Do we lose our do we lose our moment? I mean, to really kind of combat this on a global scale with the amount of information, how do we how does that look when you're talking about feelings, which is different than just putting out good information that's factual stuff? People can't hear that if they're still wrapped up in unhealed emotional hurts around race or black scary people or these things that we were uh, so injected so heavily in our history. How does that look? I and mean, just in your perspective, from. 
I mean, I don't think it's that determinist, right? So while it's true that the structure is big and it's had a huge history and it's in a lot of places, I do feel some optimism about it changing, not necessarily on a systemic level, although certainly I would say the business world is much further ahead than say education and it's further ahead than politics. So I think that there are spaces where the relationship between race and capital or race and policy or race and you know other social structures is is actually changing and there there's pushback because people are interested. Like white people feel inadequate all the time because they do not have cultural competency. They would prefer to feel competent. Many of them yeah, Some sure. of them are reactionaries, right? Some of them are reactionaries. They want to produce rage. They want to produce violence. They want to reinscribe a bunch of lost cause crap right into their lives. Mm -hmm. That's a thing. And some of those people can't be reached. But for the people who are curious and had no access, right, they are consuming cultural literature about Black people and anti-Blackness at a rate that the country's never seen, not even since the 60s. So the last two years, like the book sales for even academic books about race have skyrocketed. People are hungry and now there's, um, you know, space for them. They feel like it's socially acceptable to be curious and demonstrate curiosity. Now, sometimes they don't know how to do that, right? They, they, you know, they say ridiculous things or they are thoughtless or careless or try to touch black folks hair. Please don't ever do that or whatever, but they are more, they are more curious than they've ever been now that that doesn't mean that their curiosity will lead them to give up power right <laughs> right that's the big question right that's the big the big kahuna certainly not immediately but i mm. do think that there is opportunity now i think too that the fight over critical race theory that the republicans are trying to push is backfiring hugely mm. and is circulating you know the work of Derek Bell and Mary Matsuda and the critical race theorist Kimberly Crenshaw in places that it never would have gone this quickly so mm. that is also i think something to be maybe excited about mm -hmm. i mean i mean Oh, go ahead. Sorry. If you're going to accuse K through 12 of pushing critical race theory, which is ob obviously absurd, then perhaps they should. Mm. If you're going to accuse them of it, they might as well do it anyway. We might as well rewrite the entire K through 12 curriculum to recenter, you know, uh, people of color's voices. Let's go ahead and do that then. Right, right. Great time. There's probably a ton of people now researching critical race theory and learning and reading these books to find out where it's corrupting them. And then they're probably learning some things along the way. <laughs> Imagine. Yeah, banning um, books makes them more popular. So let's do that. Yeah, absolutely. So what's the bridge then? What's the bridge for, because there's a lot of white folks, obviously, that when we talk about white people, obviously, we're talking about this, this uh, uh, not anecdotal stuff. And I know being an academic, we talk about big structures and big people and stuff like that. But I, if white people listening, a lot of white people say, um, don't, why do you have to say white people? You know, why don't you just say people or can't, you know, even the discussion, even white talking about white or black, often sends people off talking about feelings and emotions into a place where they can't even hear the rest of the conversation. So can you, uh, for, can you just clarify kind of the difference between as we talk about white people and as we talk about, I don't know if this is even a question, individuals, or how do you bridge that for people where they can hear what you're trying to tell them? I mean, you know, we're white 
And so, you know, I'm a white person who writes books about black power and civil rights. And on the one hand, yeah, that's progressive for white people. And on the other hand, I'm going to get rewarded for writing those books when a person of color could write a similar book and they would never get rewarded the same way. Right. So Mm -hmm. there is no outside of white supremacy. There's nobody who's external to it. Everybody is complicit in it. And I feel like that's fine. I mean, in some ways, it's, it makes more sense to include everybody in that. Even you and I are not outside of that, even though we think and work on this stuff all the time. So A, we're all in it together. Seems really important. B, you know, you don't know better. You don't do better until you know better. And so when people know better, they actually often do better. Not always, right? But often. Sure. So I, you know, I think that it's really important for us to think about the dysregulation of white people as what produces violence. When white people are whole, they don't go out lynching people. Mm. When they feel whole, instead of rage, they are not out, you know, shooting up schools. So mm. we have to find a way to re-regulate white people. And quite frankly, it is my opinion that it's white people's responsibility to do that. It's certainly not the responsibility of people to color to go mm-hmm. and like fix the white people who are dysregulated and you know are alienated and have no ethics and have no philosophy and have no moral center. That is a white project, not exclusively, but certainly, you know, I think it's it's our work. Well, I, I mean, to that point, on a personal level, I still, I deal with my manness. I deal with my whiteness. These are still things that I struggle with, still things that I do subconsciously or unconsciously or, or uh, the way I think the world is, and I just kind of shoot it out there. And I, oftentimes I step on toes and offend people and do things that I don't even know that I'm doing. And 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 I imagine doing your work, obviously too. You know, there's certain things about being white that we've just been socialized to that that maybe uh, keep us from hearing the clear voice of people who are affected by this. And and so I think that's kind of for me. I, I try to figure out how in my own struggles with my whiteness and my maleness, how can I build a bridge to even the point where I've kind of had some information or I've had some experience that's caused me to kind of confront some of those things and realize, wow, I feel way more human. <laughs> I feel way more connected. I feel way more better content if I, when I get checked on something that obviously didn't make me feel good in the first place, but I've been socialized to feel like, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. uh, I guess my own personal journey, do you have also some of those things that has been pushed on you that you kind of had have had to confront at all throughout your life? Or just as an anecdote for people who may be looking at like, well, they're not this or we're all white or I'm not white or I don't experience any of that. You know, you get that kind of audience as well. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's a lifelong struggle against power. Mm. <laughs> you know, I mean, if it's true that white supremacy is this massive system that's infiltrated all of the parts of our social existence, and I think it has, that means that there, it's, it, it's a lifelong thing. It's not like you get to the end and you're suddenly, you know, everybody's free and people are struggling in different ways and at different places. And so I think you have to meet people where they're at, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't talk to, you know, I, ta- I talk in churches a lot, which is an odd thing. And I would have never guessed that that would be a space that would occupy <laughs> in front of person. Yeah, right. Here we go. And it doesn't matter. Sometimes I'm in black churches, you know, and I'm guest speaking sometimes in white churches and a bunch of different denominations with a bunch of different politics. I don't Mm -hmm. talk to them in the same way that I talk to my students or my grad students or to Mm -hmm. colleagues at conferences. So I think that you have to meet people where they are and they're not all in the same place. Right. Sure. So I, I prefer it to be a collaboration. Like 
what do you want to know? What do you wish you could have asked? Were there ever points where you're like, I want to know about that, but I don't know anybody to ask or, you know, where your parents did something and you thought it was maybe really racist, but you didn't, you couldn't stop it because it was Christmas or, you know, you felt like you were helpless to ask or to stop or to interrupt whiteness or white supremacy. So I prefer to think about, you know, the work that we do as interrupting the flow of white supremacy to create space for curiosity or collaboration or information sharing or laughter or tears or whatever, but mm -hmm. for connection. It's not, it's not like we go around just like flipping people's ideologies. That's right, not right. how that goes, but you can spark interest in them then it becomes their own personal responsibility to continue to push themselves to be better as people generally, but as white people specifically. Mm -hmm. And a more comprehensive understanding about how their whiteness is operating in everyday encounters, right? Mm -hmm. Whether they're professional encounters or their personal encounters or their friends or with their family, whatever. So I think we wanna think about it as an interruption. How do we interrupt white supremacy? What does it look like? You know, I work in a PWI, primarily white institution. And so I can say things that my colleagues of color cannot say. So I have a responsibility to take the most, right? Progressive position and eat the shit because right. of, quite frankly. So, you know, that is an orientation towards power and towards, you know, an academic career that I think is where an ethics is born. Like, how can you take up what, how can you take up ethical space? What does that look like? How can you take ethical risks as a white person? Mm -hmm. How can you shoulder, right, violence to protect people from it? I mean, there are just lots of ways. How can you comfort? How can you distract white supremacists? Mm -hmm. I mean, there are just lots of ways to interrupt white supremacy. And I think I'm more interested in that than probably anything else. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's super important. How does that look on a, I mean, studying bigger structures, how does that look to support a anti-racist society for larger structures who, who obviously chose to inject these feelings? And what, do you have any ideas about how that might look if we were yeah. to support kind of healing and connection and all that kind of good stuff? Yeah, I mean, like all 50 states allow paddling. So it's schools. So like, don't paddle kids. Don't be kids at school. That's a yeah, thing. Right. Uh, stop the school to prison pipeline and juvenile, right? Life sentences and solitary confinement, expand social welfare, dump a shitload of money into public education, pay people for childcare, guarantee FMLA, living mm -hmm. wages important work needs to be meaningful there is no shortage of shit that can be done it doesn't mm -hmm. even need to be imagined it's not like nobody's ever thought about this the ideas exist the money exists it's just about political will so you know for people who are new to this find stuff that resonates with you that intersects with your day-to-day -day life and then do that right mm -hmm. maybe that's school boards right maybe it's your workplace maybe it's your union maybe it's your church it doesn't matter there's so much white supremacy Please just plug it. Yeah, I, I find that, you know, especially being down down here, I mean, I'm around more just homogeneous white, this is like a white habitus down here, more so than anywhere I've lived in my life before. So I'm around a lot of white people all the time. And, and I find they talk about race a lot amongst white people. And you're like, how are you even talking about this? No, and nobody else around. Why are you even discussing this? And I'm, 
interrupting and contradicting things, you know, kind of as I go. But the, the prevailing attitude seems to be, it's not as bad as the media makes it out to be. Um, I'm not, it's not, it's, it's over, you know, nowadays things get uh, corrected when they come up. It's not like the old days when things were, and that's still prevalent amongst a lot of young people as well. And I'm interested in, in thinking you work with a lot of young students coming in and everybody says when the older generation dies off and this changes and how is that reproducing and how do you see, do you see that as well? Kind of that, uh, some of that going on with the group that groups that you interact with? No, I will say that this is also the whitest place I've ever lived. I will say that the biggest shock, I've been here almost 15 years in Arkansas. The biggest shock to me is how curious the white students are mm. and how they are so hungry for information that their parents know nothing about. Mm. They're like, parents, their parents do not know black people. It's a desert, they never a desert of information. Yeah. Their churches are segregated. Mm -hmm. They have absolutely no contact because of the segregation of public life in the South. So they're really hungry for it, which I think is, is helpful. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, but I, I also think that um, white people don't have scripts to talk about race and they don't have scripts about how to apologize because they have total power all the time. So when they, when they make a mistake, right, regardless of the intention, they can't just say, I had never thought of it that way. I'm so sorry. Let me think about that. And can we pause this conversation and restart it after I've done some research? Like I need to think about that for like a minute. They can't do it. They can't interrupt themselves. They can't, they don't have scripts to talk about race or their own mm -hmm. racial failures or even racial successes. The only thing that they can have is like, I have a black friend. That is the only script that, 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 that is regularly like employed. And even then I'm like, were you invited to the barbecue? You were not. Have you been in their home? You were not. You do not have a black friend. You know, a black person. Let us not confuse the issue. So, you know, they don't know what they don't know. Sure. Very often, but the nostalgia is uh, that's their their they they that's their currency, right? Because mm. that's when white people in the past have always had more power than they have in the present. Mm. So, you know, I think that the danger though is with um, the way that America is browning. You know, if we don't get a hold on all of this, you know, white nationalist, Christian nationalist, white supremacy, that the U.S. in the next twenty years will become an apartheid nation where. You know, it's going to be a country of people, mostly people of color that are ruled by a very small white elite. And even though the white elites have controlled much of America for a huge amount of time, an apartheid state is a very different kind of racial place than an emergent pluralistic democracy, even though it has failed in many ways. Mm, interesting. Wow, that's a, a harbinger of things to come. Is there a way to, I mean, how do you, how do we avoid that situation? Obviously, yeah, but that's not, that's going to be a, that's a tough mountain to climb. Is there, I mean, is the only option, some sort of drastic, I mean, not only just for that, but for climate change, for the, for the kind of the, the world in general, just staying alive as humans, white supremacy seems to have, you know, really taken its toll on the planet as well. I mean, we're kind of headed towards a dead end if we don't figure this stuff out pretty soon. And, and the fact that we've got some optimism here, we've had optimism throughout our history at different points in time. I mean, things haven't really changed drastically enough to stop the kind of plummeting off the cliff. I mean, are we, are we destined in that direction unless we have some revolutionary type of action or what do you think? 
I mean, I would be happy with uh, safe and secure voting rights. Yeah, I think that would be a help for sure. For sure. I think, you know, I think the indigenous perspectives on this are actually really instructive because if you want to talk about people who understand what it's like to be wiped out. You know, the indigenous people in North America know a lot about settler colonialism and about grief and about eco grief. And they have a lot to say about that, that I think is worth listening to. But of course, their voices have not been privileged in the conversation because they've just been steamrolled by right colonialism. So I actually think that there's a lot to be learned. And also they'll tell you like humans are resilient, no matter what happens with climate changes, humans will stick around. It's just about who gets to survive if we can't prioritize our collective struggle together. So, you know, I think any of the things that encourage people to um, collaborate on politics are probably good things, you know? I mean, obviously the Nazi stuff aside, that's not good, but, you know, people have to learn how to deliberate and that means they have to be uncomfortable and that means they have to argue and they have to try things out and they have to listen instead of speaking. What's some of the things that you've learned about realities of change? I mean, in this kind of, in this sphere, it's hard enough having conversations with regular people. You're talking about politics, people who kind of have to change their opinions based upon what's going with, what, kind of votes they're getting and everything. How is that? Tell me a little bit about your work there and what what you see optimistically or pessimistically about how we can create So, change. you know, I basically function as a strategist now, right? So I advise candidates and caucuses and uh, write legislation and do oppo oppositional research and things. So I'm sort of a Jill of all trades, you know, okay. in terms of politics because I've, I've been doing it so long. Mm-hmm. And I will say that I love Arkansas politics because it's such a small state and it's um, because it's so poor and so small, you can have contact with a lot of people really quickly. And mm-hmm. so the political network here is very much based on relationships, right? Mm-hmm. Not just patronage relationships like, you know, I bought you X, so you owe me Y, but actual relationships in the community, right? You're going to see your legislator at the bank and at the grocery store and at the county fair, and you're going to see them all the time. You know, you're going to run into the governor at the bar. You're going to, you know, it's easy to have contact with the people who make decisions. So as a woman, particularly one who does race sex gender work, that's important to me because a lot of the other states, especially in the North, have such dense patronage systems that have been around for hundreds of years. It's really hard for newcomers to break into politics here, there, and it's not the case in Arkansas. So I will say that the Trump moment and its commitment to deep white supremacy is shifting people to the left inside of the Republican Party. And I think that is going to be very interesting. It's certainly happening in Arkansas Um, And so I think there will be a shift in corporate politics, but also in party politics. Um, It's certainly in Arkansas and in other sort of purple states in the South, certainly not Florida, maybe Texas, depending on what happens in their governor race. But I mean, the GOP is eating itself. It is like, you know, Saturn devouring his children. It's like a Goya painting, right? Right. And so it's like, what what happens when the white people devour themselves, when they're gnawing off their own arms and legs and shit? That's where, that's the, that's the moment we're in right now. Mm -hmm. And so I think it will shift the discourse of the GOP in ways that are actually more harmonized with like the 60s Democrats. 
So I think it's going to be a political realignment on race for sure. I think the Biden administration for their, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Joe Biden. Uh, mm-hmm. I never have been, but you know, you have what you have and that's how politics. Right, right. But he's not my fetish, but I will say that, that he is taking good direction in terms of filling the cabinets with people mm-hmm. of color from a wide variety of perspectives, especially in the Department of the Interior, where he's put, you know, Deb Holland is just brilliant. And so having the first Native American cabinet appointee in charge of the interior is like huge. Mm-hmm. Or like the Department of Justice and all of the women of color that are going to remake the Justice Department. These are these are things that I guess bore people who don't particularly think of themselves as interested in politics, but they are really the nuts and bolts about how a nation sees itself mm-hmm. and how it produces its own image. And it's only been white people for the most part that have done that imagining historically. So to have other people imagining America's future seems like a breath of fresh air. If we can get past, you know, the Trump moment and the insurrection and, you know, the fascism. <laughs> seems like such, such, you know, it's like night and day. Politics is so crazy. It's like, opposite ends of a spectrum almost there's no uh not opposite ends of spectrum it feels like this should be the way things are because it represents the people in the in the country and then you've got this outsized force through gerrymandering through all these different ways that this minority has so much power over the sway of our nation it just and and people really take that as an as a legitimate equal view as people who represent so much more of the country and have so much more diverse kind of you know, views on things. And that's part of the reason, I mean, when you talk about Trump and people say, well, you know, I love Trump, he's the least racist, he's the this, he's the that. And they they talk about it like they have no, you know, the way he he just spouts off on it is just so different from the way that we, we experience it on a, on a political level and on a real level for people. But this is why they want to kill critical race theory, right? They don't want any kind of critical... Um, intellectual inquiry into American history. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, it's funny when I teach classes, I'm like, I just want to start every class and be like, here's a map, label stuff. Here's mm. the globe. Tell me what you think you know about where stuff is. Mm. How does the bill become a law? Tell yeah, me check about the temperature. Yeah, check the yeah. temperature. <laughs> here's, right. here's a picture of your body, label the bits. <laughs> you know where your parts are? Do you know what they're called? You don't. So I'm just like, can you just have a reality check about how much shit we do not know? Because it is staggering. Yo, and- damn. So like, let's not lean into that. Let's let's lean back from that. Yeah, right. Lean back. More and think of it more and talk to people who are different from us. It is yeah. not that hard, but they're so dysregulated. All they can do is react. And so they get spun out and they freak out. Anybody who's ever been in an explosive holiday dinner with their family knows what dysregulation looks like, right? It's like, we're going to flip the table over this political yeah. argument or whatever. And that's right. how whiteness is. This is. And it creates dysregulation in other people because it is so erratic. And it's just like, let's shoot kids of color for sport. That's Or let's go lynch people. That is whiteness. That mm. is the history of whiteness in this country. It is dysregulated mob group think. And it's it's fundamentally part of American history. It doesn't have to be part of the American future, but it absolutely has been a constitutive force creating what it means to be American to do this group think herd mentality, you know, production of whiteness through, you know, hyper violence. And the Trump administration is just the last iteration of that. I do think that it is um, self-defeating. It's just sort of like white nihilism. Right. Mm -hmm. 
So it will burn itself out, but the backlash cycles are just exhausting and people are anxious and they're tired and the COVID stuff on top of it, because of the disparate, you know, health disparities that affect colorism mm-hmm. so much worse. So it's, I mean, obviously this is not a great political moment. America is not doing well. That isn't to say that it will always be this bad. Yeah, no, I, 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 I see the optimism kind of, I mean, it's, it's tough to see when you see everything kind of reproducing itself, but I do like your point that it's not the 60s. This things nowadays wouldn't have ever happened. Nobody wants to be a racist anymore. You know, nobody wants to be called that. Uh, plenty of people want to be racist. So well, okay, yeah, I guess maybe you're on your box. Right the majority of people, if you say you're a racist, they immediately try to say, no, you're the racist, or I don't, it's it's more of a it's got less of a popular kind of a appeal for folks than it may have in the past where they may not have been. And there's a there's an opening there, right? I mean, is there an opening to 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 build off of that, even if it's just a, a, a top of the head kind of reactionary thought to not want to be racist? Is that something that, as people who are trying to kind of reconnect and get rid of this these systems, is that something to piggyback off of? Is there a, is there an opportunity there to say, well, if it's not racist, then how do we get? Then why are there racial disparities? And really kind of pointing people to to getting down to the nuts of their, they have to, why, why, why? Okay, damn, what I'm thinking is racist. I mean, to get them to the point where they're actually calling themselves out on it, it seems like there's an opportunity there. There's an opportunity and and they just need practice. Just think about anything that you've ever loved and wanted to do or things that you really were curious about but had no skills that you actually have to practice it. Race work is the same. Humaning is the same. Date, it's like dating, right? You suck at it for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe your whole life. It's like a complex skill set. Right. Also, the same with race. Doing whiteness is a complex skill set. You have to unlearn stuff and relearn stuff and practice it. So it's not like you can go from zero to, you know, a 45-year-old professor who does race work in like the span of uh, an HR seminar at work where you mm-hmm. learn about microaggressions. It right. is a lifelong <laughs> transformation. And so if there were support for that, people would find it less daunting, I think. Mm. And so, you know, what I think is very interesting is the uptake of critical race into corporate America, because that that is so it's oddly cutting edge. It feels like it would just be neoliberal, but it's not because the corporate types are like, ooh, this is taboo, but also um, we need to hire a global workforce. <laughs> so I think I should probably know about this. <laughs> right. It is some real applicable kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> real world consequences for yeah. not for ignoring this stuff. Right. Yes. And they're like, how do we learn how to do this? What is this language? What does yeah. this mean? Who are these people? Well, how do people talk? And I'm like, we're having totally different conversations. Like mm-hmm. the professors who do race work and like the gen pop people and the general population, we're mm-hmm. not having the same conversation. So, mm-hmm. you know, insofar as there is an opportunity to collaborate Outside of the academy, I think that higher ed professionals, education professionals in general, need to be speaking to larger publics and just in this way. And this is why I love podcasts. I also love podcasts to talk about race work because people have their earbuds in and they're taking mm-hmm. this conversation right into their physicality directly. Mm. Right. It's not it's not turning on the TV and having the shouty discourse of like ESPN slash MSNBC slash Fox where people are just screaming their bullshit at you. All of them. Yeah. Awful. Yeah. 
It's a terrible way to think about politics. It's no wonder people don't want to participate. The other end of that is NPR, which is like golf for politics. Mm-hmm. It's like right. I'm fucking sleep. I'm like, why would if you want people to be invested in this kind of stuff? Why are you talking to me like I should be taking a nap? So they there have has a passion. Right. Yes. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. What's the so, point? Otherwise. Yeah. So I think that the digital stuff, even though you're right, that there's an information economy that sucks right now because obviously Facebook is corrupt. I think that there are opportunities for new media to produce alternative scripts for us to learn how to talk. And for me, as a white chick who does race work, you know, it's really important for me to take up space as a woman, right? Talking Mm -hmm. about race, we're talking about radical black history, but black men in particular. And so I make a lot of effort to spend a lot of time collaborating with black folks, generally black men in particular, also black trans folks to be like, because people, their entire lives are segregated. Mm. So to even disrupt physical space with the play and the charm of doing race work in interracial spaces, that is where the transformation happens. And I, I think that people are so intimidated by politics because it's so brutal that they can't even get to the point where they can play because they're so in their feelings and they're mm-hmm. so scared of, of being wrong and screwing it up and mm-hmm. they can't let themselves be vulnerable and connect with other people. But if you can get them to that place, then they are really delighted that they did it and they want mm-hmm. more. Inhuman. I mean, I think that's part of what whiteness takes from us is a piece of our humanity. I mean, there's a there's a piece of us that's been cordoned off for races. This race gets this piece of humanity. This race is this piece of humanity. This pay, and to have some of that back, I think for everybody feels great to just be reconnected with pieces of ourselves that were taken. I mean, well, it is. Mm-hmm. It's repressive, and that's why sex gender is a vector of race. Mm. So, you know, sex panics come about because of race panic. And so all of this like anti-trans bathroom, trans athlete stuff is fundamentally just anti-blackness, but people don't want to be called a racist. So they focus on sex instead. It's always been that way. There's huge history and lots of literature about it. But, you know, I think that in order to get people to that position where they can enjoy encounters, even when they're called in, right, or corrected, mm-hmm. they have to build rapport and connection where there's some trust. That means you have to do some vulnerability. White people do not do vulnerability. They don't admit when they're wrong. They don't ask questions or demonstrate curiosity, especially without groups. They right. don't provide care work. They withhold care as a personal thing, but also as a structural thing. They hate social welfare. They bitch about it, even though they benefit from it constantly in their public schools, mm-hmm. their roads, or their emergency rooms. All that's your tax money, building social welfare. All Your food is subsidized by the federal government so you can eat it for cheap. So is your gas. We're all benefiting from social welfare. We're just mm-hmm. not the same way. And so I think that if we can shift that ethic, right, especially in light of climate change, to say like, yo, we need to really collaborate on this shit or it's going to be really bad. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, it's gonna be really bad. And even white people are going to suffer. And that's the thing I think that is probably is necessary is that white people have to feel the suffering mm-hmm. that other people feel routinely. Right. COVID has made white people suffer because they thought they were invincible and then they mm-hmm. got COVID and mm-hmm. didn't get the vaccination and their horse dewormer didn't work. Or, you know, they, you know, or they're going to lose their house in the flooding yeah. climate change. Or they're going to roast right? In their home. Mm-hmm. I mean, right, like, right. 
the effect of some of these things cannot be their white supremacy cannot insulate all the white people from the plagues and horsemen of the apocalypse coming in the future. So that suffering is going to be distributed among white people in ways that it hasn't before. And that's unfortunate, but also that's for some people, the only thing that's going to make them, you know, make them to get yeah, their own self-interest kind of, how can we, is this going to affect us now? Now let's work on it because I see the effects of it. Is that what you, but also break them down. Like you are not invincible. Mm-hmm. You're on a ventilator because yeah. you did not get a vaccination, even though we know vaccinations are absolutely worthwhile scientific developments. Right. You sure. that. So you so the white people are confronting their mortality in a way that they have not had to um, since probably World War Two, really. Mm. And so that's a shift. I will also say, you know, in your question about history and about this moment being different about generations, you know, the baby boomers were the largest youth generation that the earth has ever seen because mm-hmm. of the baby boom and they are passing and there are not people who are being born to replace them. Mm-hmm. So they will die off and it will look different because mm-hmm. there will not be young people to take care of you and I in our old age. Mm-hmm. I don't know who white people think is going to pick food. I don't know who they think right, is going right. to do that. I mean, we're basically in the middle of a slow moving labor strike worldwide, but certainly nationwide. So in Arkansas, as you know, in most of the South, they have, we have right to work laws. So there are no unions. So people are just refusing to go back to work and they're not going to get paid shitty wages. We haven't raised the minimum wage in 20 years. So that is fundamentally shifting white people's attitudes about whiteness. Mm, that's Revolution is here is what I'm saying is that white yeah, people yeah. are running their own monstrosities and inadequacies in ways that they have not been forced to really confront. And I mm. think even We're though the is here. Still looking for scapegoats. I mean, at some point, the scapegoats are going to oh, yeah. going to run out. Yeah, but but they're still having to confront them. So well, tell me this, the, the struggle. I mean, two things. What maybe you think about while you were saying that is the connection to other white people also gets better the connection to yourself the connection to other white folks there's there's a part of whiteness and socialization that we use to kind of make scapegoats and keep people away but that also we practice that on white people most people are in this white habit so we practice whiteness on each other and we don't realize how harsh that is and how much more beautiful things can be if you know you get rid of some of that stuff i'll tell you what i asked my gender students i said when was the last time your parents made a friend and they're like my parents don't have friends my dad has a man cave and my mom has a craft room. And that is how white people live. They live in the suburbs where they are completely disaggregated from people who are not like them. They do not yes. have friends. They're completely alienated. So there is no world in which white people are like productively whiting together. No, that's what I'm saying. If you work on that, the beauty yeah. of working on that and being connected to more of a global part. I mean, there's there's a beauty in working on racism for yourself too. Like it's not just you're going to help all these other people, some benevolence, some fake false yeah. benevolence or something. It's your own connection to your humanity. It's your own connection to people, contentment, enjoying your life, all this kind of things. Um, it's just fascinating that that's something that's not promoted more as a as a as a buy in for a lot of people who don't. But it's hard to sell that, I guess. Maybe I don't know how you. Do no, that. we just went a different direction. So, and after World War II, a, a guy named Walt Disney came to the Eisenhower administration. He wanted some money, yeah. and Eisenhower was like, "If you do a bunch of propaganda for the Korean War, here's some money for Disneyland." Mm. And Eisen and Eisenhower gave 
Walt Disney the money. He built Disneyland. And the whole thing was a simulation, right? Mm -hmm. So the small world after all was in Tomorrowland. The future was where you could go and look at other cultures with your eyes, but they were fake and they were models and they were in the United States. And that's what Americans do. Instead of going to places where they can learn about other cultures and experience the discomfort and dislocation of being Mm -hmm. out of privilege, they stay inside the United States and simulate racial contact through films and music and Disneyland and shit. So we made that decision. I mean, he made that decision for us, but collectively Americans bought into simulation instead of vulnerability, instead of, Mm. you know, the kind of, um, you know, awkwardness and dislocation. The beauty of human, yeah, the yes. beauty though. That's the beauty of like, that's where you find your fucking source of everything, what means anything to you is in that yeah. uncertainty and in that that confrontation and in that kind of, uh, who am I, who are you? Let's talk about, let's work through this. Okay, so, and I know we don't have a lot of time here. I appreciate you taking this hour, but in your own in your own journey in this, just for white folks who may be kind of coming into this and kind of being concerned uh, the awkwardness of kind of getting into the conversation, can you just talk about some of your moments in your life where you had to kind of take a take a jump or where you felt uncomfortable, where you learned something about the journey towards being more connected or the things we're talking about here? Because I know I, you know, obviously there's plenty of, and I, it's kind of a vulnerable question. It's kind of a, I don't know, not too, maybe a too personal question, but something that you can kind of, because even you, even I, even people who have studied this stuff, we, we are confronted with in the real world with things. And I think that a lot of white people are scared about kind of that thing that we're talking about, that uncertainty or that scared feeling or that confrontation of who we, our whiteness and stuff like that. Is that something you could speak to at all or is that? Oh, yeah, it's vulnerable. I mean, yeah. you are vulnerable to say, yes, I have been part of a system of violence and I've been complicit in an X, Y, Z way. And also I'm trying to attempt that. And you've invited me here to talk to you about that journey. So there is like, there's, I don't, I mean, I don't even know how to pick one. There's every single time I'm go out in public talking to publics, the last public talk that I gave, you know, cause COVID I have not been doing in-person talks was at a Methodist church and it was a pretty segregated congregation. But for the people who showed up, there was only one black person in the entire audience. It was all white folks. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and she was probably 80 and had so and and she was making hardcore eye contact with me and I thought we were really grooving together and afterwards she came up and she hugged me and she said you know I hope you don't take this the wrong way but I just feel like you're chocolate on the inside and it was like the most gorgeous compliment and she was like all I could think she said to me all I can think of is like all of the scars that I have on my back from marching for rights in Arkansas Mm -hmm and from being whipped by the police. And so, so in the middle of all these white bodies, only Mm -hmm. white people, we have this, we're standing between the pews and we have this hyper real conversation Mm -hmm. about, you know, what is, what does it mean to produce white accountability? What does it mean to model white accountability? What Mm -hmm. did it mean for her? Like it was cathartic for her Mm -hmm. to watch these white people react to me saying Mm -hmm. things like in this religious space. Um, you know, she talked about how she got to Arkansas and, you know, her entire life history. So, you know, I don't know this. I mean, I don't I don't know any of these people. They invited me to come in and talk. And I gave a, a barn burner of a speech about white supremacy. <laughs> and and here is this black woman had to sit through this whole thing as the only person of color in the church 
mm. as I'm talking about these things. And so, you know, we got to have a vulnerable moment. And I, I guess I chose that one because it's a positive vulnerability. Yeah, right? sure. But it was raw. Right. It was a raw moment. You know, and it's not always positive because people dysregulate at me all the time about stuff that has nothing to do with like what I said or did. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's part you still have to do that, right? You can't walk away from those moments either. So, you know, there are a couple people who did not like the title of black feelings because they're like, what do you know about black feelings? And I'm like, mm. it's a history of how feelings talk creates public policy. Mm-hmm. And it, that's a heuristic that the term black feelings is how white people operationalized massive brutality in the 1960s and consciously reinterpreted black policymaking as uh, aggressiveness against white people. So, mm-hmm. but, but, but that was an intent to misunderstand me, right? Because it sure. fit their model for what like white people sometimes do when they steal black ideas or cruise black culture. It's the, or it's the white men can't it. jump or where you can't, you don't understand this, this song because you have it. And there's a, I mean, there's a certain, uh, there's, there's a certain way I think that, white people um, like can can operationalize things and can experience things on a heady level, but there's a different level of understanding of things, obviously, if you're black, that 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 what people I think are calling to maybe in that instance, like, hold on, you don't understand this piece of it. So how are you talking about it? Maybe. But also I'm like, I didn't write this about you personally. This is a historical <sighs> book about rhetorical things that are public record. Yeah, right. These people were all having this conversation. They were having it together and it was public. This wasn't private interior feelings. This is not your feeling about your family or feeling about your love or your feeling about your history, or your church or your personal stuff. It's yeah. not about that. And I, and that's not my business. That's not my story to tell is the interiority of black people. That's not my, that is not my project. I'm writing about the politics, right. Sure. Of, of race at mid century. So I, I do think that occasionally people are not generous with me and whatever. I'm not, it's not like I'm not going to survive that. Right, so it right. doesn't seem like a thing that to make a big deal over, even though it occasionally happens because I'm never going to like get professionally destroyed <laughs> you know, because I wrote these things. Like, it's not, I'm not going to be ruined yeah, right? Right. to be generous in that moment and be like, thank you. I hear you. I appreciate that feedback and I will consider it. You know, it costs me nothing to say that and to be generous, even when it's coming from a place that is fu- mm. fundamentally full of trauma. Mm-hmm, right? mm. People have traumatic encounters with me, mm. even though I'm not necessarily producing. You the have to produce, yeah, you're re-stimulating something that's yeah. happened multiple times throughout yeah, history. Sure. And it's, it's not even you, it's like, and that's part of the, I mean, that's part of the emotion work. And that's some of the stuff you talk about when it's like when a girl cheats on you, you go, or a guy cheats on you, you go scratch his car up. Um, if you were using your brain, yeah, you're not going to scratch his car. If you're not trying to go to jail for three months over some guy that you've only known for a week. But when you're caught up in these emotional kind of re-stimulations, next thing you know, you're doing the dumbest shit you could ever imagine. And, and I think we often get sent off and, and politicians and people use that to kind of sway us and move us in different places by sending us off in these places where we're not using our heads anymore. And, and but I, I find it fascinating. You talk about a lot of that work and a lot of that um, in your book, a lot of that emotion work, not only with the black discourse, but with white feelings and, and shame and all those things that are manipulated and used in white communities too. So I, Anyway, so much more. I, I really, it's four o'clock. I don't want to keep you any longer. I really appreciate you um, coming in. And we. I feel like we could talk all day because there's so many different things to talk about with this. But you're brilliant. And I really appreciate you coming in and having this conversation with me. So oh, I'm so glad to be here. It was really lovely. And I hope we get to hang out in the IRL. 
after yeah. this. Yeah, tell me about it. Let's do that. That would be fun. Okay. We'll go sit down and have a drink or something. I would love that. I will follow up. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It was really delightful, Steve. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you again. And we'll, I'm, we're going to be talking soon. I have no doubt. Take care of okay. you. Okay, you too. Bye. Uh, hey, thank you so much for listening. This podcast was created to engage white people in conversations about white people with the goal of ending racial disparities and reconnecting us with our human family around the globe. Please check out the show links for more information about our guests. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast and share with your family and friends to help spread the word.